Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Jason Pash, a member of Madison Teachers, Inc. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hello, and I'm Anna Ham. While I've never been a belonged to a union, I did go out with a member of the Sheet Metal Workers Local, I found him riveting. This week we discuss the impact of right-leaning Supreme Court decisions on workers, learn about an important CUNA picket coming up, catch up with labor actions by Red Cross and Starbuck workers and others, share a statistic of the week, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining member of WORT and Labor Radio. Voting on a national tentative agreement is underway for Red Cross workers around the country. However, a local Red Cross workers are still in talks to hammer out details covering local issues. Labor Radio's Ellen LaLuzerne spoke with local Ask Me leader and their union representative about the talks. A national agreement was reached on June 30th for Red Cross workers that's undergoing a ratification process as we speak. However, various regions around the country negotiate over options for local conditions. Our area, Red Cross, is still negotiating over these items. Christina Schmidt, president of Ask Me Local 1205, and Neil Rainford, Ask Me Council 32 representative, spoke with me about their situation. Neil, can you give us a brief overview of what the national agreement looks like? The national agreement covers about 60 unions around the country of Red Cross blood collection employees, and it contains a new agreement regarding health insurance and regarding across-the-board wage increases. The parties agreed to a new health care program through the steelworkers that replaces the healthcare program that we had purchased in the last contract from the Teamsters. In terms of wages, the new tentative agreement contains a bonus meant to compensate employees for the lack of an increase going back to last fall when the contract expired, and approximately 3% increases in each year of the three-year agreement going forward. Christina, can you tell me about your reaction to that national agreement? I believe hearing the information of the agreement made last week benefits most of our members. I do believe that it's never going to be what the healthcare that we did have, it's never going to meet that. But I do think that this is our best option. And I do think that 1205 understands that we're never going to get what we had, but this is definitely the next best thing. The agreement that was reached works in our favor as far as healthcare. Having the bonus, it's something. And I do believe that we will appreciate it. I do think that there's still more to go over as far as local contract. But for the national, I do believe that this was a good agreement. What are some of the issues in those local agreement talks? Our schedules as far as the hours that we're working. There's safety and uniform policies regarding you know cold weather. We are trying to reach a fair wage so that our people can live and they can afford to feed their families. 
Even though there's a nationwide agreement to 3% increases across the board for each employee, our local contracts are somewhat unique in Wisconsin and Iowa because we have a schedule of wages that increase over the first 13 years of employment. One of the sticking points is whether or not the 3% annual increases will apply to every step of that schedule, benefiting not just the newly hired employees or the existing employees, but also those employees as they progress through their careers at the Red Cross. The Red Cross has attempted to reduce the value or eliminate entirely those wage schedules that we think are essential for not only attracting, but also retaining employees over a career. My understanding is you're having trouble getting management to the table. Can you tell us about that? We initially requested to reopen these negotiations in August of 2021. And in the succeeding months, the Red Cross has either canceled or delayed negotiations over 20 times. We've really only had two negotiation sessions over this nearly a year-long period. What are conditions like for you all? Because I understand that there is some understaffing and overscheduling. Because of all of the lack of retention, these staff, they're wearing themselves out. We've had to cut hours. We've had to cut down donors because we do not have the staff. So because we cannot keep staff, we're ultimately turning away people who are trying to donate so we can have blood products, so we can continue to save lives. Are you asking people in the community to support you in any ways? So we actually have talked with our donors. We've referenced that we're in negotiations and we're telling them what is going on behind the scenes that they're not seeing. One other way that we've encouraged the public to support negotiations and to encourage the Red Cross to negotiate with its employees is through a move on petition, uh, encouraging the Red Cross to negotiate here in the Badger Hawkeye region. That was Neil Rainford, AFSCME Council 32 representative, and Christina Schmidt, president of AFSCME Local 1205. I'm Ellen Lelizern for Labor Radio. On Tuesday, UW nurses testified at the Dane County Healthcare and Public Health Workforce Deeds Subcommittee. Frank Emspach brings you the story. Frontline nurses and caregivers from area hospitals and especially UW hospitals and clinics testified to the extreme challenges they faced in their efforts to provide quality care. They identified understaffing, turnover, and lack of support, all exacerbated by COVID. Ashley Campbell told the committee what work was like for her and her colleagues. This was once my dream job, but now we find ourselves in what feels like a nightmare that we can't wake up from, a severe and endless staffing crisis. Nurse Campbell described the moral and mental challenges she faced at home and at work. And one by one, my devoted colleagues leave my unit, not because they wanted to, but because their wives and husbands have watched them become husks of their former selves, incapacitated by the moral injury, and they pleaded with them to leave. Other nurses discussed how they felt the situation was back to zero, from where they started before the pandemic, meaning short staffing, inadequate training and support, but made worse because of fewer and fewer staff. These nurses said they needed to know that there was a reason to keep hanging on. Another nurse put it this way. I just, I think it needs to be said that I, I wish that we could rely on the hospital to do this for us, to care for us, 
to provide programs for us that would help with our mental health, but we can't even rely on them to provide the proper PPE, to give us vacation time, to give us meaningful cost of living adjustment increases. This is not something that we need to put on the hospital because it will not happen. This is something that needs to be done on a larger scale, unfortunately. And it is our community. It's your community and it's mine. If you or I get into a horrible car accident, we're going to one of these hospitals. If your loved ones get hurt or sick, they're going to one of these hospitals. If I would feel safe having my family in some of these conditions, even though the nurses are trying their best, there's only so much they can do with a patient load of five people to six people, sometimes seven. If we're going to get any kind of meaningful change, it does unfortunately have to come from this committee and this body because the hospitals are not going to do it. They have shown us for years where their priorities lie and it's in profits and it's not in you and it's not in me. Nurses emphasized that the situation, while exacerbated by COVID, is part of a continuing, long-standing emergency as regards the provision of health care, especially staffing shortages. The nurses who spoke strongly supported the committee and the committee's willingness to hear directly from caregivers and address efforts to deal with retention, recruitment, and continuing training. Next month, the committee will focus on solutions and then report their findings to the full county board for appropriate action by the board. I'm Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. In the wake of a resounding union victory at the Starbucks Cafe located at 1 East Main Street on the Capitol Square, baristas employed at the store are looking to the future. Labor Radio spoke with Lee Marfiak, a shift supervisor and worker organizer at the 1 East Main Street location, about the story. Last week, workers at the Starbucks Cafe located at 1 East Main Street on Madison's Capitol Square voted 15 to 1 in favor of joining with the Chicago and Midwest Regional Joint Board of Workers United. With a victory, they became the fourth unionized Starbucks cafe in the state and one of over 180 corporate locations across the country to win a union election. Labor Radio caught up with Lee Marfiak, a worker organizer and shift supervisor at the 1 East Main Street Cafe, to discuss the victory. Marfiak describes the atmosphere in the store in the days after the results were certified. It's been very positive. You know, obviously it wasn't a super contentious vote. Uh, so it helps, you know, everyone's on board and feeling the same way. So we were all very excited to win the election. We had a state rep and then some um, staffers from one of the state reps were in the building that day, like watching the election. Um, for management, things at the moment have been fairly low key, which is fine by us. Uh, we haven't seen too much. There's been some flyers. There's a lot of just misinformation put out there from upper management, some blatantly false things, some dubiously legal things. Um, but overall, it's just been a very positive um, atmosphere and we're looking forward. 
Marfiak noted the support shown by community members and patrons, both before and after the election. We've had tons of customers come in and congratulate us and just say, you know, Union Strong or heard about you guys, whatever, which is just great and very positive because, you know, those are the people we see every day. It's nice to, you know, get support from them and they know how hard we work. They see what we do every day. So they understand that we, you know, deserve better. So it's great to hear that. Workers are still deciding on the exact terms they will request in their first contract, said Marviak, but that there are already broad stroke improvements that they agree on. Yeah, I mean, we're still kind of in that phase where we're, you know, trying to nail down exactly, you know, we obviously have, we want better wages, but like what exactly point we're trying to set that at, you know, better healthcare. I mean, one thing that would be really substantial is just credit card tipping because it would cost Starbucks almost nothing, but it could increase our effective wages a ton. Um, so we haven't really nailed that down as a group yet, but we're uh, in the process of doing that. The next steps for contract negotiations are foggy, according to Marfiak, in large part owing to the company's policy of dragging its feet on coming to the bargaining table. Exactly how negotiations, when negotiations are going to begin is kind of an open topic. Uh, Starbucks's uh, strategy so far has been to just delay and delay and hope the momentum burns out. That obviously is not going very well as more and more stores are filing. However, you know, it could draw things out. For Marfiak, participating in a union campaign sharpened the sense of shared experience with his coworkers. I mean, it sounds silly, but like how much support there is, like, at, you know, ask people their opinions about unions or, you know, just having all those conversations. And there was just all this latent energy where people were like, yeah, I would, I do want a better workplace. Like I am tired and just kind of reformulating people's complaints about their workplace that everyone has. And, you know, everyone is underpaid and overworked and you know people understand it people get it when they understand that you're just trying to get you know better wages and better work environment that really affects everyone and seem very distant and obviously like i think there's around seven or nine percent i can't remember the exact figure of wisconsin work workers are unionized and i think that could easily flip and go completely the other direction because there's so much support it's amazing to me how much can be done and how much uh, people are positive about this and can take it in a great direction. You've been listening to the voice of Lee Marfiak, worker organizer at the Starbucks Cafe located on 1 East Main Street. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Negotiations between the CUNA Mutual Group and its union OPEIU Local 39 are going slowly. The union and the Madison labor community want to give some encouragement to getting a fair settlement. So here's more on tomorrow's informational picket. In Madison, contract negotiations drag on between the Office and Professional Employees International Union, or OPEIU, Local 39, and the financial giant CUNA Mutual Group. The union is asking the South Central Wisconsin labor community to join an informational picket at CUNA headquarters tomorrow. Labor Radio spoke today to Kevin Gunlock, president of the South Central Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO, or SCUFFLE, who told why organized labor considers these negotiations important for all workers here. They've lost 1,200 jobs in the last 20 years. And this is from a company that's been making hundreds of millions of dollars profit per year. And just last year alone, they made $600 million profit. They need to invest in the workers and workers that are here in Madison and in our state of Wisconsin. Good luck summarize the union's contract demands. They want affordable health care. They want a retirement security. They want fair compensation that keeps up with the inflation. And they want to be able to also, like a lot of workers, they'd like to be able to work remotely. And that's been proven that workers get more work done 
or at least they like to have that choice. So here's a company that's made, again, $600 million in one year alone, and they're pushing back against these requests and demands that are very, very reasonable for any set of workers. Good luck gives details about tomorrow's action. We're sending out communications about their event tomorrow. It's Saturday, July 9th. Starts at 11 a.m., goes till 1 p.m. Stop by any time between that time period. Stop by and support the workers. They'll be on a picket line. There's a lot of workers that go out there, and it's always great to have community support and other labor support. And the address at CUNA Mutual is 5810 Mineral Point Road, and we'll be on the uh, public sidewalk. That was Kevin Gunlock, president of Scuffle. As OPEIU Local 39 noted in a communication about the event, we are calling on all labor unions, faith-based organizations, community organizations, and Madison community members of good conscience to join us on an informational picket line. The picket is tomorrow, July 9th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at CUNA headquarters at 5810 Mineral Point Road in Madison. Scuffle and the union have said that supporters are welcome at any time they can attend during the two-hour window. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. National Nurses United is calling for suspending the filibuster to allow codification of abortion rights. Labor Radio reporter Ellen LaLuzerne has the story. National Nurses United, or NNU, sent an open letter to lawmakers in the Senate demanding passage of a bill recognizing and protecting abortion rights. They're also calling for a suspension of the filibuster in order to make that happen. The NNU says the bill should not only protect the right to abortion, but should also ensure states cannot enact or enforce laws that seek to punish abortion providers within their jurisdictions. They called on senators to take a stand for reproductive health justice by passing the Women's Health Protection Act, or WHPA. President Joe Biden pledged to sign the act into law if it reaches his desk. The union stated, quote, as members of a healthcare profession that is 90% female, nurses understand that abortion is an essential part of healthcare and that a patient's right to control their own body is at the very basis of a free and just society, unquote. They also noted their members understand they have a duty to advocate for patients and their right to make their own healthcare decisions. They also referenced the need for bodily autonomy, self-determination, and dignity. This is Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Overturning Roe v. Wade denies the rights of women and all working people, but the Supreme Court's limitation of the Environmental Protection Agency also targets the rights of working people. Frank Emspach has the story. The Supreme Court is making rulings and increasingly restrict individual rights while expanding the rights of corporations. The overturn of Roe v. Wade is an example of the restriction of the right of women to control their own bodies. However, in the last year, the court has also restricted workers' rights in a variety of areas. Labor Radio interviewed Marjorie Cohn, past president of the National Lawyers Guild and co-host of the radio program Law and Disorder, to get her take on what the Supreme Court did and what it can do in the future. The overturn of Roe v. Wade shocked people as did limitations placed on the Environmental Protection Agency. But these were not the beginning of the assault on workers' rights. Marjorie Cohn explains. At the end of last term, in June of 2021, the Supreme Court, 6-3, to three, with the six radical right-wingers in the majority, struck down the Agricultural Labor Relations Act of California, their access rule, which said that growers 
have the right to exclude union organizers from their property. Without access to the property, there is no real right to collective bargaining or union organizing. That, I think, was a signal that the court is going to hand down anti-labor, pro-business rulings. What was the court's justification for decisions such as the Lochner decision of 1905, which eliminated the ability of the state to set regulations? They grounded that decision in the 14th Amendment's freedom of contract. What this decision did was to severely curtail the government's ability to regulate business and the economy. The EPA decision may establish a foundation for bringing Lochner back. The court claimed that rights are legitimate only if they were embedded in the history of the country. But the court also used the major questions doctrine to undermine rights. This doctrine means that major questions, unless specifically addressed by Congress, could not be addressed by agencies such as OSHA, even though Congress formed the Occupational Safety and Health Administration specifically to determine health and safety regulations and standards. The issue in this case was masking mandates, which the court ruled as invalid. The states and the employers said that this mandate by OSHA would force them to incur billions of dollars in unrecovered compliance costs. I think they'll use this major questions doctrine, which Neil Gorsuch champions. It's basically deregulation of anything that would cut into corporate profits. And I think that they will use that after this EPA decision to strike down workplace protections, rules that protect the rights of workers to collective bargain, etc. In your opinion, will these decisions, particularly the way you just characterized the major questions issue, can that be used to eliminate and or undermine the ability of the National Labor Relations Board to function on behalf of the worker? That given this EPA case and the explicit use of this major questions doctrine, everything is up for grabs, including the authority of the NLRB to protect the rights of workers to collectively bargain. And since the protection of workers and labor may cut into the profits of big business, of corporations, I can see this reactionary right-wing court now with a supermajority of right-wing conservatives taking aim at anything, any regulation that would impact the unfettered right of business to make money. So I'm afraid that that is a possibility. That was Marjorie Cohn, as president of the National Lawyers Guild, commenting on the recent Supreme Court decisions and their impact on working people. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Next, we'll hear a report on the United Food and Commercial Workers and its campaign to expand union representation in the cannabis industry. As a legal and regulated cannabis industry expands across the nation, Unions like the United Food and Commercial Workers are looking to ensure that union jobs are a part of the deal. The UFCW is America's largest cannabis workers union with over 10,000 cannabis members nationwide. The union represents workers in multiple sectors across a handful of cannabis legal states and the District of Columbia. Within the past three years, the union has also increased the rate at which they are unionizing cannabis jobs, mirroring the increasingly rapid expansion of the industry. A search of National Labor Relations Board elections showed that cannabis workers voted in 26 NLRB representation elections in 2020 and sided with the union in 18 of them. This figure represents a net increase of 14 wins over 2020 and 16 wins over 2019. 
accounting for almost two-thirds of the retail industry's unionization gains during this two-year period. A report released by the Economic Policy Institute in September 2021 found that unionized jobs in the cannabis industry had safer workplace conditions, came with higher salaries, and were more likely to provide benefits like health care, paid leave, and fair scheduling. In addition, the report indicated that union jobs can be a part of limiting inequities along both racial and socioeconomic lines. Specifically, data in the report showed that cannabis workers of color earn up to 32% more from unionization than non-union cannabis workers of color, and that protecting job quality across the cannabis industry improves opportunities for workers from a wide variety of skill and educational levels. UFCW Legislative and Political Director Adamola Oyefeso has emphasized the importance of baking in workers' rights as states consider legalization, stating, quote, America's cannabis workers proudly serve the communities every day. They have earned and deserve the quality jobs the industry they helped build has created. As America's largest cannabis workers' union, the UFCW urges all states, as they consider new cannabis policy, to include worker standards. Doing so will ensure that the thousands of hardworking people and families affected by failed policies benefit from legalization in the form of quality, sustainable jobs. Background information used in this report was gathered from the Economic Policy Institute and Bloomberg Law's National Labor Relations Board Election Tracker. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Agra. All right. And now an announcement about the upcoming Unity Picnic on July 16th. A family-friendly and free Unity Picnic sponsored by the Urban League of Greater Madison and Southwest Madison Employment Center is scheduled for noon to 5 p.m. on Saturday, July 16th. This 8th annual picnic will be held at the Southwest Madison Employment Center at 1233 McKenna Boulevard across from Elver Park. Free barbecue will be provided with sides and dessert until the food runs out. There will be a DJ, musicians, and artists with a photo station and face painting. More information is available on Facebook and by calling 608-620-8714. This picnic is different from the Black Latino Unity Picnic that is sponsored by the Immigrant Workers Union and began in 2009. The Black Latino Unity Picnic is scheduled for Sunday, August 28th at Penn Park. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Jason Pash. Thanks to editors Frank Imspack and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhard and Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hom, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to website editor J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Anna Ham. We also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Now, please stay tuned for The Blues Cruise with Dave Watts.
Lafette de Marquette returns to McPike Park Thursday, July 14th through Sunday, July 17th. The 2022 Fete is bigger than ever. This year features a new wine garden, a wide variety of food vendors, a huge family and kids activity venue, colorful arts and crafts, a second line procession on Saturday, a karaoke sing-off on Sunday, plus there will be music. Over 40 bands on the Sun, Moon and Family Fete stages and on the new Lafayette stage. Headliners include The War and Treaty, Sunny Landra, Dwayne Dopsy and Zydeco Hellraisers, and Sun Pie and the Zydeco Sunspot. A full list of performers can be found at will-mar.org slash FET. The 2022 La Fête de Marquette runs Thursday, July 14th through Sunday, July 17th at McPike Park. Keeping you informed of musical celebrations, this is WORT 89.9 FM Madison and WORTFM.org.